Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 1010. To kick off this week's show, Jay Jaffe welcomes Dan Hayes of The Athletic to talk about Joe Maurer. It was announced that the Minnesota Twins' hometown hero would be inducted into the organization's Hall of Fame this year, and funny enough, he'll also be on the Baseball Hall of Fame ballot for the first time as well. So Jay and Dan felt they should get together to discuss his career. They agree that his excellence was stellar, even if shortened, and that he should be a slam dunk, but they expect their share of frustrating debate. What about the fact that Joe Maurer was paid pennies on the dollar for the best years of his career? Yep. And somebody actually did point to the valuations of the on the Fangraphs page. You know, we estimate that Joe Maurer was paid some. I think these. I think these are the numbers. He was paid two hundred eighteen million dollars in his career, and he provided three hundred thirty million dollars yep. worth of production, a gap of over a hundred million dollars. So. You know, it did not all even out, and it usually doesn't because because of the way that you know aging bodies and baseball's economic structure, you know, are are tilted. And I joked that privately, and I didn't put this out on Twitter, and probably for good reason, that anybody who wants to argue with me about Joe Maurer needs to pass a twenty-seven page quiz about <laughs> injuries, especially concussions, and baseball economics and positional scarcity before we're going to have this this discussion about Joe Maurer's Hallworthiness. <laughs> yeah. After that, Ben Clemens sits with Michael Bauman for the latest edition of Fangraphs Backstories. Michael shares with us how he arrived at Fangraphs after many years of sports writing and times at places like Crash Burn Alley and The Ringer. We also hear about some of Michael's favorite baseball memories, including his brother in Little League and Monet Davis representing Philly. Ben and Michael also talk about the upcoming Sabre Awards, for which they are both nominated, and how they have adapted their writing to fan graphs. Like, I've had to change it a little bit because, you know, the demands for Grantland are different for the demands from D1 are different from the demands for fan graphs. Like, you know, I yeah. write about baseball differently than I did six months ago. And that's one thing that I've, I've, I'm working I'm making a real concerted effort not to lose is that, like, this is a, you know, this site, you know, what makes this site what it is, is commitment to empirics and i'm trying you know trying to find ways to make that dovetail with storytelling and yeah you know, sort of like the the political philosophy of the game which has always been a, a great interest of of mine and you know making it all sort of make sense in a, a broader narrative context and that's yeah you know, it's been one of the fun things about adjusting to to working here versus some of the other jobs i've had yeah i think that one thing i really like about fan graphs is that because it's very data driven when you manage to do the like the storytelling thing with the data it feels really good oh man it's one of those like i don't know i wouldn't know this from experience because like i said i was a terrible baseball player but like i'm told that when you really connect with a ball and like there's no vibration in the bat like that feeling is i imagine that's what this this feeling is like because i've done what you've described a very few times in my career and it, it feels great every single time but before we get to these great segments i must issue my weekly reminder for you to head on over and visit the fangraphs.com shop not only can you nab yourself some official Fangraphs merch, but you can pick up a Fangraphs ad-free membership, good for yourself or as a gift for a friend. Browsing as a member is not only the best way to experience the website, but it's absolutely the best way to support the website. Helping us to do everything we do, from the articles, to the projections, to the leaderboards, to the roster resource pages, to the podcast, to just plain keeping the lights on. We could not do it without you, and sincerely appreciate the help. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hello, this is Jay Jaffe for Fangraphs Audio. No sooner had Scott Rowland been elected to the Hall of Fame last week than some people, this scribe included, began thinking about the 2024 BBWAA ballot. Where Carlos Beltran was by far the most prominent newcomer to this year's slate, but encumbered by his involvement in the Astros' 2017 illegal sign-stealing scandal, the first-year candidates for 2024 constitute a bumper crop that includes Adrian Beltre, an easy lock for election given his 3,000-plus hits and sterling defensive reputation, Joe Maurer, Jace Utley, and Bartolo Colon. A Minnesota native and former overall number one draft pick who won an MVP award and became the first catcher to win three batting titles, Maurer excelled behind the plate to the point that he ranked seventh in jaws among catchers, and fifth according to the seven-year peak score. But because back and leg injuries and a series of concussions and post-concussion problems drove him off the position in his early 30s and into retirement in his mid-30s, not everybody sees him as a slam-dunk first-ballot choice. In particular, a small but vocal minority has long demonstrated some amount of disappointment and even open hostility to the notion, 
blaming him for not living up to the eight-year, $184 million contract he signed, and for what really were the Twins' ownership and management's limited efforts to build a competitive team around him. I got an earful of this, so to speak, on Twitter in the days after the election, and Dan Hayes, who covers the Twins for The Athletic, took notice. Dan reached out to commiserate with me while noting he was writing about Maurer, and after I agreed to talk to him about the catcher, we decided that this could make for an entertaining podcast session that could serve both of our audiences. So I'm going to bring him in and let him ask me some questions, and I'll ask some of him as well. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hey, Jake. What's going on, man? It's been a wild couple of days, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. It has. And I know uh, we, we saw each other briefly in uh, San Diego during the winter meetings, but didn't get to spend a whole lot of time catching up. So uh, it's good to have a conversation with you here. Yeah. It, and look, it's really funny because I think both of us, you know, I'm not from Minnesota. I'm, I'm from Northern California. And so both of us have the outside view here. And I've been, this will be my sixth season coming up covering the Twins, but I think we're both equally astounded at the fact that it's like 60-40 amongst Twins fans, whether or not <laughs> Joe Maurer is a Hall of Famer. And, you know, I like I, I saw, and, and I've had these battles before online in 2019, the year after he retired, and talking about his candidacy then. And it's just funny because, you know, seeing you go through it, it was like, oh yeah, this is out here. This is, and, and I just thought, you know, Man, you know when we're when we're talking about it, like what are what do you think they're not seeing? What like this? Yeah, I don't think it's slam dunk, but like this is a Hall of Famer, right? Right. Yeah, and you know it's interesting. We just I think we saw we saw some of this when it came to Roland, particularly from Phillies fans. And you know Roland's time in Philadelphia was not a particularly happy one. He he came up with the Phillies. He played very well for them, but he also got ripped by a couple of sour old school hard asses who were in power positions with the team and manager Larry Boa and general manager Dallas Green. And that helped to kind of poison the well there uh, such that when he was offered a, a, a nine figure extension, he turned it down and then was eventually traded to, to the Cardinals. And he said he'd reached baseball heaven, which really, really pissed off those Phillies fans. And <laughs> we, we heard from some of them uh, in the wake of Roland's election. They didn't see how Roland was a hall of famer and they were, you know, I think, somewhere between resentful and, and uh, uh, angered by it, or at least that they didn't get to share in, in the glory so much as uh, they were part of uh, an escape to safety narrative right. uh, when it came to his career. So, you know, this is not the, this is not, uh, Maurer is not the first one to have to endure this, but it is especially strange just because he was the hometown hero and such a, you know, seemed to be, such a you know high character guy. I mean, you know, boring almost yeah. to the point of like hilarity. Um, and, and I think some people also interpreted that as like being soft or not caring. He just wasn't. Right. He wasn't a red ass. And and I think you know a certain segment of that fan base of fan bases they want those red asses. They want somebody who looks like they give a damn. And if you don't look like you give a damn, but you're but you you quietly excel, you may not get the same respect from those audiences in the same way i think and honestly when we talk about that stuff you know one there's so many guys everybody internalizes stuff in different ways failure and success and and we know that right like nobody exactly does it the same but i think a lot of it was just that joe mauer had sort of this i don't know uh, he had to live up to this standard i mean he was from home and he got the biggest contract in club history and his, you know, everything was showered on him from, you know, before he ever became the first overall pick. Everybody knew about him in his own way. He was Minnesota's, you know, icon and had this standard that he chose to live up to the way he did. And because he was boring, it's funny. It's so fascinating. And the, the behind the scenes Joe Maurer, if anybody ever gets it on who he really is, you know, there's such a, a competitor in there. And I heard some stories um over the years just the of how he hit it but there was there was more to it than he just you know what it was is he wasn't the fiery leader like tory hunter uh, and he grew up around such a great group of guys think about like a great long time cast of players that stuck around the majors forever when you think about pierzinski and morneau and kadire and tory hunter and like this group of position players they came up with was so talented and he's just sort of the the guy that liked to be in the background the quiet fire guy and i think 
you know, people wanted more, like you said, and it just sort of, I don't know if that rubbed people the wrong way, because it really, I think, has to do far more with the team's failings rather than his individual failings. And I mean, what, okay, so let's just ask you this. What do you think when you look at that catcher resume, and especially the catcher resume, and I think people obviously associate the last five years as a first baseman, but what about that catcher resume stands out to you that just, you know, you, you mentioned he's, what, seventh in Jaws amongst catchers? Was that right? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a stellar resume. It's 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 shortish, yeah. you know. It's it's shortish, you know, as a catcher. But you know, when you look at when you look at the fact that Buster Posey and Russell Martin and Brian McCann, the other top catchers of of, of the same period, uh, and even going back, Mike Piazza, these guys all petered out in their mid thirties um, and walked away. They were they had been well compensated for what they did. They didn't have to grind forever. We know so much more about concussions. Now, or we did by the end of their careers than we did at the start of their careers, that, you know, those ri- the risk reward trade off, our understanding of it, you know, really changed. And I think, we, you know, there's a tendency for people to, to look at Yadier Molina, they're who obviously their contemporary, or uh, Pudge Rodriguez, or before him, uh, Carlton Fisk, the original Pudge, and see guys who, who caught past their 40th birthdays and think that that's, like that anything short of that is a shortcoming and you know yeah. you got to be as tough as a $2 steak you know to sur- to survive at that position that long and I, man I don't want to hear Carlton Fisk's knees when he bends down to pick up a quarter that he dropped <laughs> yeah. it's, it's got to be a physical nightmare for these guys every day uh, because the position is just just so brutal i mean even even without the concussions and once you factor the concussions in even with the improvements in equipment yeah it, it, it's scary but i see a guy who, you know, who checked so many boxes. I mean, he didn't have, you know, the championships that Buster Posey had. Right. You know, and maybe I've undersold, you know, the quality of the of the of the teammates around him. I think the big problem was the pitching more than the position players, because as you mentioned, there was a good core of position players uh that the twins came up with. But for years when I was at baseball prospectus, I made fun of the twins organizations aversion to high strikeout rate pitchers um, as if it were like some kind of some kind of like you know fancy thing for east coast you know for coastal elites <laughs> rather than rather than a wholesome midwestern pitching to contact or something like that you know i mean this is you know this is a franchise whose best pitcher developed uh during that time was brad radke yeah and that that took you know forever to it seemed what felt like forever to get Johan Santana and Francisco Liriano into the rotation and, of course, decided it couldn't afford Santana and traded him out of town, eventually traded, traded Liriano. And, and so, you know, there's, there's, you know, there, there, there's some failures there that, you know, because Maurer did stick around, he has become saddled with. But right. I mean, geez, getting back to the, the resume. Yes, he only caught, you know, fewer than a thousand games. But again, he's seventh in wins above place and seventh in jaws among catchers. Yep. That's measuring his career and his peak, best seven years. And all seven of those years are his years as a catcher, which that's damn remarkable. You know, yeah. normally you when you have a guy with you know with a with a limited period of time, you know, at a position that, that accrues value quickly, you don't get that. But he's he's well above the peak. And you know, this the version of war that I use for jaws for catchers does not incorporate pitch framing, but the pitch framing data we have on Joe Maurer is also pretty strong. It's not as strong as that for Molina, Martin, McCann, and, and uh, uh, Posey. Right. But it's a but, but they didn't hit like him. They nobody they hit, hit like him. Like, yeah, they did. Yes, they did, they didn't hit like him, and he was still well above average. And you know he's right there with them. If if I I've got a, a version of uh, Fangraphs pitch framing inclusive WAR. Uh, that I haul out, and that I'll be that I that I that I dropped into my five-year Hall of Fame outlook that came out on the uh, the the Monday after the election. So to me, he's an easy choice from from my ballot when I when I contemplate filling it out for the for 2024. And I imagine, you know, there are a lot of people who feel that way, but not everybody does. And and because it's such a crowded ballot, you know, we'll see where it lands. Yeah, I wouldn't be shocked if he's a second-year guy uh, myself. Like I. I I see it and, you know, you see some of the climbs. I think he's going to end up – I did a just a quick poll in 2019 of um, 
athletic writers who were Hall of Fame ballots or Hall of Fame voters. And I think we had seven, and I wasn't on that list. And I think it was, I would say four were slam dunks. The fifth was on the fence. Two were no's at the time. Throw me in there. That's, that's five who are yeses out of eight for sure. And it was borderline six yeses. And that was, you know, five months after we retired. Right. So I think it wouldn't shock me if he ends up in the 60 ish range next year, 50, 60 range. But, you know, it's funny because that 2018 season was the only year that I got to cover him. And I just think the what it, what could have been. And it, Justin Morneau, the same thing. Uh, both of them, their concussions. And I think Morneau's concussion stuff got maybe maybe because it was so much more visible because he took yeah. the, the knee to the head at second base. You know, Maurer, you know, in 2018 playing first base did a full-on wide receiver dive for a foul ball down the line in Anaheim. And so this is five years removed from his last concussion or the, the serious concussion. Mm-hmm. And we talked to him and I talked to his wife too. And there was a period of a week. He was fine. He actually played the next day. And then the concussion symptoms started to roll in. And there was a period of like four or five days at home. And he had two five-year-old daughters at the time where he had to sit in a dark room and could not talk to his family because <sighs> he was having so many issues. And it's, you know, they, they gave him the, the last game of his career. They let him get back there for one pitch, a ceremonial right. catch. And, and Yohan Moncada allowed him to take the pitch. The White Sox, you know, they're on the verge of losing 100 games that day. And they were very gracious about it and allowed it to happen. And there was just, like, the family had to be convinced for, like, months to let it happen because they were so concerned about what could happen if he was back there and took another foul ball off of his head. And, you know, I think it's really weird that the seriousness of that that gets overlooked by fans here because because there's phrases like bilateral leg weakness that were the organization mishandling a leg injury publicly and he got looked at as soft early on. And so people hang on to that stuff. And it's like the fact that, you know, his numbers didn't, at, you know, he gets the contract and his numbers post-contract, they weren't what they were pre-contract. And it's, you know, it, there's so many things that tie into it and it's sort of astounding. I don't think, you know, you, you see it and we see it on people who comment back to both of us and say, it's probably a small minority. I think it's actually bigger than a small minority. There are some people that I would say that there's 20% of that crowd that really, truly just doesn't have a high opinion. And it's, it's astounding because when I come in as a visiting writer covering the White Sox, man, even when Joe Maurer was not nearly what he was at his peak, he was still one of the toughest at bats I've ever seen. And like he could be facing a lefty specialist reliever and find that opposite way hole with a back-breaking hit late in the game. And he did that so much. He was so good in the clutch, especially in 2018. And, you know, it wasn't a big home run guy. And he went to a park that was took away his home runs um, by going to Target Field. And we're having that same discussion with Carlos Correa right now because he looks at that right center field wall and he gets mad when he <laughs> smokes something all the time. Um, it's, it's a tough park in that regard. And, you know, Joe Maurer probably lost a good 20, 30 home runs by not having the baggie anymore at, uh, at the Metrodome. But, um, I mean, man, it's, it still like just looks like a great career and even when, you you know, he, he reached that 2,000 hit mark, which I, I just feel like when we look at some of the guys who have been let in the last couple of years, I, I don't see how he's not. Um, one reporter brought up a good a voting reporter today, brought up a good question, but I, it, it's sort of unfair. It, it's that, well, shouldn't Mattingly be in first? And you know what? I, it wouldn't shock me if Mattingly gets in on the next committee he's on based on what we've seen the last couple of years. Like the, it just seems like the committee's take care of guys later on. Fred McGriff, I'm very glad Fred McGriff got in. There's a guy who I would have voted for every day if we had, if we didn't have this stupid rule of 10 on the ballots mm-hmm. uh, the first couple of years. There were just so many dudes who... I finally voted for Jeff Kent this year. It's the first time I had a chance to vote for Jeff Kent. I would have voted for him before. Probably would have voted for Sammy Sosa before. But there were like 14 dudes on the ballot at the time. I think some of these guys get in later. I think it, it helps that category. But I mean... When you hear somebody, a voter say, well, shouldn't Maddenly be in? First, 
Where, what's your sort of response to that? Yeah, I mean, okay, there's, there's, you said so many things here. I want to touch I know. on here. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna try to go through reverse order here. The Mattingly thing. I mean, people forget just the degree of defensive difficulty and how that, how that reflects, how that's reflected in war. Mattingly was a great first baseman. I don't want to take anything away from, from the fact that he was so good at first base. He probably could have played the infield elsewhere in the infield had he not been left-handed. He did even briefly play second base as a kind of a late inning emergency situation. Um, and there was a time when they actually discussed it more seriously when he was in the minors because he didn't have the power of moving him around. But being a catcher and being above average defensive catcher is just so much more valuable. Right. Absolutely. And people forget that. But there I think you can see a you know comparison in terms of the way that, that injuries cause these guys in the last you know, five years of their career, or I forget exactly what the point of inflection is for Mattingly here, although I certainly have it down in, in my profile of him, you know, they were shadows of their former selves. Now, to get back to some of the other things you said, I generally think about like the first ballot thing as like kind of a, a it's an annoying aspect of Hall of Fame discussions. I, you know, you're you don't get a special you know star on your plaque for getting in <laughs> exactly. on the first try. Um, every, you know, like I showed, I, I did, I, I did a, I posted a, a photograph the other day of that I that I taken. It's Derek Jeter's plaque is right next to Ted Simmons. Derek Jeter got all but one vote from the writers. Ted Simmons went one and done from the writers and needed like a quarter century to get in via the error committee. Those plaques sit right next to each other. Those guys are equal in the eyes of the Hall of Fame. Yep. And they're both like, I think, 12th in Jaws at their position, uh, just as a coincidence, uh, or something something like that. It's really, really close. Anyway, what's really weird is that Yvonne Rodriguez's election in 2017, he became just the second catcher ever to be elected on the first ballot. The writers did not elect Yogi Berra, a three-time MVP on the first ballot, Gary Carter, a 10 straight all-star appearances, number two ranking in Jaws on the first ballot. Mike Piazza, the best hitting catcher of all time, bar none, on the first ballot. No, none of those guys got in. Carter took six years. Piazza took four years. Like, what in the actual (laughs) (laughs) It is, believe me, man. It it just enrages me, and it it, it diminishes the voting history of the BBWAA. Absolutely. No, like I know. It is, it is a black mark against the organization that, that voters have been such, such like such hard asses that they couldn't see fit to elect these guys at the first try. Now, I agree with you that I do think it might take, especially because of the crowd on the ballot, uh, an extra year for Mauer Mauer to get it, maybe even two. Getting back to the injury stuff, yes, I I do believe that the bilateral leg weakness thing, a ridiculous term that has no parallel within the game, um, and it's probably not even really a thing, and as somebody somebody on Twitter called it a you know a game of telephone involving the Twins management that resulted in Ron Gardenhire being told he shouldn't discuss injuries publicly um, because that that ended up getting so mangled. Um, but it certainly left the impression that you could the word weaknesses right there left the impression that Mauer was soft. Yes, but I was going back and forth against one guy on, on or with one guy on Twitter, and he had forgotten that. When I said multiple concussions, it's like you're talking about Morneau. I was like, "Yeah, dude, I saw that." Are you? Did you? Did you forget that Joe Maurer had multiple concussions? That he missed time even in the last year of his career. That that was what like caused. Because I, you know, the specifics of what you said about the dark room and stuff. I remember hearing some of that stuff, but hearing it again just you know curdles my stomach yeah. just thinking about that because I mean, like I can't even deal with a hangover. Okay, <laughs> um, you know, it's like. Like to think of like just how debilitating that must be for you know to to go through a concussion and when you're just you know we've seen so much with the you know the NFL players and CTE and all that it's it's just it's scary and I I I can totally understand why somebody wouldn't want to risk that but these people who are who are irate about Joe Maurer can't even remember that it was the concussions and it's like, like yeah were you, what what news where were you getting your news from. I, I, I you know. <laughs> sometimes astound and that's the part that's that's been tough is like the misinformation is out there yeah. on this so badly. And and sometimes I think it's fans that might not necessarily be diehards. Yeah. And the other thing the other thing about it is the contract thing. And it's it's you know, there's the resentment over the hundred and eighty four million dollar contract, you know, 
Same, the same guy. I don't know why I let myself go more than two rounds with this idiot. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm a Minnesota taxpayer. I, you know, I oh, like ROI, ROI. Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, that guy. <laughs> yeah, that you know that he felt like he was specially owed something for Joe Mauer. Well, what about what about the fact that Joe Mauer was paid pennies on the dollar for the best years of his career? Yep. And somebody actually did point to the valuations of the on the FanGraphs page. You know, we estimate that Joe Mauer was paid. Some, I think these. I think these are the numbers. He was paid two hundred eighteen million dollars in his career, and he provided three hundred thirty million dollars yep. worth of production. A gap of over a hundred million dollars. So, you know, it did not all even out, and it usually doesn't because because of the way that you know aging bodies and baseball's economic structure, you know, are are tilted. And I joked. That privately, and I didn't put this out on Twitter, and probably for good reason, that anybody who wants to argue with me about Joe Maurer needs to pass a 27-page quiz about injuries, <laughs> especially concussions, and baseball economics, and positional scarcity before we're going to have this this discussion about Joe Maurer's hallworthiness. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it is... It's a really, uh, it, it's so cut and dry when you look at it from the outside. I'm like, where am I? I'm, I'm here. And like, twins have great fans. Honestly, they, there's a lot of like, it, it's just so crazy to see how it has evolved. And I've only been here for six years. So yeah. it's going to be a fun, fun year of debate. And there's yeah. going to be a lot of it this year. I hope I can learn to learn to live with the back and forth. I've 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 joked that I'm going to give these these needlers hell all year long um, <laughs> about about this that they've messed with the wrong melon farmer. <laughs> all right, well, Dan, that was a, that was a uh, I think a lively summary of, of of what we're both hearing about Joe Maurer and what we'll be thinking about over the next I guess ten months before the ballot gets out and year before we we learn of the final results. It's been great to talk to you. I hope this has been useful for for uh, for what you're writing i'm sure our audience here which is probably a bit more sympathetic to the idea that joe mauer is worthy of the hall of fame and quickly will enjoy it as well but i'm glad we could work this out uh, into something that uh, both of our audiences will enjoy yeah hey i'm amazed we kept this at like 25 minutes because we could easily have gone on for like 90 minutes with all the little different they would have absolutely absolutely <laughs> yeah. absolutely all right thanks so much for coming on for Vangraphs audio i'm jay jaffe Hey, welcome to another installment of Fangraph's Backstories, and this time we have college baseball's finest, Michael Bauman, on to talk about how he ended up at Fangraph's and what he loves about baseball. And I'll be very disappointed if it's not about college, Michael. It's not really about college. I came oh. to college baseball late, but I appreciate you having me on to talk about myself for half an hour. That's, you know, you know how much I love doing that. That's what we strive for here. I know that I love, love doing it so much that I just thought, why not have everyone else do it, too? So... As you may know by now, the, the format is pretty simple. I'm going to ask you two questions. And the first one is, how did you end up at Fangraphs? Well, I saw an ad in the paper uh, and applied. <laughs> I mean, that's the proximate answer. You know, yeah. I'd been sort of looking for a change of scenery. And, you know, when the job posting up went up last uh, last summer, you know, I tossed in an application. Here I am. The longer answer is, like, this is the culmination of... 13 years of writing about baseball on the internet. When I got out of college, I started as a journalism major and worked as, you know, worked on the student paper, interned and, and freelanced at, at a couple trade publications. And when I got out of college, this was right after the financial crisis when we thought that the uh, job market would never get more hostile in media than it was in 2008, 2009, <laughs> how wrong we were. So I decided I did the, the smart thing and went to grad school. And I, wrote on the side this was mm -hmm. when the Phillies were really good so my so Paul Boyer who Phillies fans might know is the host of the the Phillies therapy podcast he and I have been best friends since middle school uh, that's convenient yeah uh and he had been kicking around with a, a little blog that he had been doing and I was bored over the summer after you know between uh undergrad and grad school and I was like can I come write for your little blog and he was like sure and then you know within a few months we got picked up by a bigger site called Phillies Nation we wrote there for a few years and then both of us eventually moved to Crash Burn Alley on the uh ESPN Sweet Spot network oh, may she was, rest in peace I was gonna say I thought that was a uh SB Nation thing no the good fight which is still around is the SB Nation thing ah, got but it. you know the good fight 
does great work and has produced, you know, produced many of my friends and lots of, uh, you know, future professional baseball writers in its own right. But the the group that we had there at Crashburn for a couple years was me and Paul and Paul went on to do various jobs in baseball. Bill Bear, who was um, at NBC Hardball Talk during the latter days of that site. Mm-hmm. Corinne Landry, who's now in the Phillies front office. Uh, Spencer Bingle and Ben Harris, who have gone on to front office careers. And Eric Longenhagen, who you might know. Uh, so, you know, this it, yeah, this was a good re- group. Yeah. And also Matt Winkleman was the, the last editor of the site. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's uh, uh, the future Phillies guy, knows more about Phillies prospects than anyone, maybe including the Phillies themselves. Um, so, yeah, so that's where I really honed my craft for for a couple years. Like I wrote a mailbag column that was like 5,000 words a week. And oh. just in terms of like getting reps in, that was, you know, where I got where I turned from like an immature blogger into someone who could actually write and all that's off the internet now because Crashburn went defunct and I'm better off for it because <laughs> not all of it's good. So ever since then, it's like, it's been a series of lucky breaks for me, basically. Like, uh, it just so happened that Chris Ryan, who was editing at Grantland in 2013 is a Phillies fan, read my stuff, asked me to come on blog uh, about baseball for them, which I did for a few years. Um, and then when the leadership of that site, when founded the ringer, they hired me. So I worked there for six years covering baseball among other things. And, you know, my purview like expanded and then, you know, I, I'm getting back to my roots here. And I think, you know, we covered some, yeah. uh, some of this when, when yeah, we when podcasted you... together for the first time, but for sure. Yeah. So, you know, in between I've freelanced a bunch of places, had a spell of baseball prospectus, covered college baseball for D one baseball for a year and a half. Uh, and all of that is, uh, I don't, I don't miss the hustle that much. Uh, yeah. so good to have a home. I somehow skipped out on the hustle phase and every time I talk to someone about it, it's just like, Oh man, like it's, it just sounds draining. It's one of, you know, I think my professional career is a, is a series of mildly unpleasant things <laughs> that like forced me to get better. And I'm glad I don't have to do anymore. So, you know, I'm not the alternative. Yeah. yeah. I'm not a big, like you have to pay your dues kind of thing. That just seems like a miserable way to look at life. But like, they're definitely, you know, all things considered, I think I've had a pretty easy road to working full time in sports media, but there have been setbacks and, and so forth that I think I've learned a lot from or, you know, moments of, of discomfort or hard times or whatever that I've learned a lot from and others that were just completely unnecessary. So, you know, you just try to, you know, I mean, at least it's a mix instead of all the second. That's true. You know, I, like I said, I've definitely um, been very, very lucky and, yeah. uh, most people just and have motivated. setbacks. I mean, I would say, and motivated. Like You got a bunch of jobs. That's not like a gimme. Yeah, I think it helps that one thing that I used to tell people that I think surprised them, like, you know, when Crashburn, when people were leaving Crashburn for team jobs all the time, you know, people would ask, like, do you want to be a GM? Do you want to work in a front office? And I said, no, I'm not in this for the baseball. I'm in this for writing. Like, that's like, I love yeah. writing. That's the the thing that really kept me going, you know, had me writing tens of thousands of words a week for free or for like 50 bucks a post for most of my 20s. And baseball just happens to be you know, the thing that I love writing about. And if it wasn't baseball, it would be something else. I think you and I are alike in that. Yeah. Like, I definitely enjoy writing. I like baseball a lot, too, obviously. But I took this job because I wanted to write, not because I love baseball. It's both, but, you know, it can be one over the other. And what... What I would tell people is like, uh, you know, the league or a team or even like the MLBPA, like they don't have a job to offer me that I think I would enjoy yeah. doing. <laughs> There's like not a polite way to say that, but I mean, maybe there is. Maybe what you just said I think, is I it. think that's pretty polite. Like, but I'm, the you know, not interest, you know, the skills that I have that would, you know, such as they are. I don't know. I've listened to to your backstory with Alex and yeah. who is apparently a child. Right. Yeah. He, he, but also like capable of technical and statistical feats that i could not comprehend like i just i I might not be smart enough to work in a front office anymore well i feel like a lot of the front office uh, a lot of front office jobs are either very mathy or like not very mathy with Mm -hmm. not a lot of kind of in between for people who can like fake it but aren't great i don't know yeah maybe i'm making that up maybe i'm projecting that there's no job for us well unfortunately i'm in the fake it but not great Um, yeah (laughs) i am too it's uh it's a, it's a big part of the Venn diagram. I don't know if it's actually a Venn diagram. I was going to say we need people like us. I'm not sure we do. Maybe we don't, but I'm happy to further the illusion that we need people like us who can sort of, 
you know, translate what the the people who are doing the the real statistical work do into I agree. You know, terms that everybody can understand. You and know, hey, I've, I've had non baseball. Yeah, I've I've had non baseball jobs like that too. You know, I was a technical writer for a while, so like, oh man, it's, I did not. That's know. a yeah, that's a I don't know, like a lot of a lot of the reasons. It's it's one of many things I did in my twenties that day jobs that I hated so much that like I did a lot of baseball blogging just to take my mind off the the grind. So, <laughs> all right, well, that is a. Like, pretty straightforward uh, way to get to fan graphs as these stories go. And uh, apologies to everyone, by the way. I, I forgot to mention this at the start of the podcast. There is a drill operating in the near vicinity of my office. Dylan is doing his best to edit it out, which is, like, a very good best. But if you and hear you it, I'm thought, sorry. you thought the solution was to bring on the biggest, loudest tool you know to have <laughs> on the podcast. I've been sitting on this joke for 10 minutes waiting for you to explain the drill. <laughs> Uh, we might have to go put that in at the beginning at the end time is weird so the how did you get the fan graphs question is fine but the reason that i'm doing this is to ask people what is your favorite baseball memory and so michael bauman what is your favorite baseball memory i've thought about this i'm i don't know i've i've got a bunch like i think it's probably not major league related and i know i you know Mm -hmm. i say this it might sound weird as someone who just covered the phillies run of the world series it's all stuff that i don't know i'll give you I'll give you three. I'll give you the the coolest thing that I've covered is a, a member of the media, and right. then a couple things that are a little bit off the the beaten path. So, when I was this was my second year at Grantland, I was working there, you know, part as a permalancer basically, and I was living mm-hmm. in Columbus, Ohio, and this was when the the Taney Dragons of Philadelphia went to the Little League World Series. Okay, I'm sure you remember oh, Monet cool. Davis. Oh yeah, she that was a Philly team. Yeah, that was a Philly team. And they even like just so happened that the the regional colors were the the sky, you know, the the sky blue and maroon from the throwback Phillies uniforms, which nice. I'm almost certain was an accident, but it was very very cool. <laughs> Happy accident. And so, you know, I was within driving distance of Williamsport and I was talking to to Chris and he was like, "Just go, we'll get you a credential." And so I went to her last start of the Little League World Series and it was unlike anything I've experienced before or since. Uh, in baseball awesome. like just ter- like it was the all the you know i'm sure like the cespedes family barbecue guys and the espn crew that does the williamsport series every year like they all talk about like the atmosphere and how unique it is and it's all of that is absolutely true and like i got to experience that like in the middle of like a unique media circus that hasn't been uh replicated before or since or it hadn't had, certainly hasn't been replicated since and like while I was there, Rob Manfred had a press conference. That was my first encounter with with Rob yeah. Manfred. He had just been named commissioner designate or whatever the the term was, and so like I don't, that was it's one thing that like and like I was at the first World Series game at Wrigley in 2016. I, you know, I've covered several World Series now, and that's it's still the the biggest coolest thing that that I've ever done. Was it just like loud, unique? What was so great about it? It was loud. It was disorganized. It was chaotic like i think there's there's a thing that that i've always kind of believed is it, like the closer you get to the grassroots level mm-hmm. not the more pure but like there's an element of of uncertainty like there's an element to that like the game works the way that the game works the way like the hackiest writers in the world think that it works at the major league level where it's all about you know like desire and focus and stuff and and like at a certain level there the level of play is just so great that that that's just not how it works anymore everything is just very you know very structured and very you know predictable to a certain extent and there's a i think actually a lot of my favorite baseball memories come at a point in the developmental curve of the players where the like it's not just all about who can stand in there and and make contact without crying and it's not all about you know it's not all deterministic on the basis of 20 years of right. of development and statistical study and everything like that there's like you know it's somewhere between like little league world series and like college baseball this is one of the reasons that I, that I like college baseball is that you know it is unpredictable and strange and it's not just completely it's not regimented and you know, it hasn't been picked over the way that the major league baseball has. And, you know, there are, you know, I'm, I mentioned this last time on the, on the show, I'm a big hockey fan. One of the things yeah. that I look forward to every year is world junior championships, because it, you know, that's like the equivalent of the college world series in hockey. It's, you know, guys who are good enough that if you look at them, they're like, Oh, these are professionals. 
Uh, right. But like, it's just a little bit sloppy. It's a little bit chaotic. And, and so it's, yeah. The one that I always think of is like the NCAA tournament where yeah. there's guys that like, will just be on NBA teams in three months. And you'll be like, Oh yeah, yeah, that guy looks the part. And then there's like, you know, five foot 11 white guys who are just scrapping it out and slapping the floor. Right. And I think that that's, um, that's a good example, like, because there's so much at stake. I find men's college basketball to be unwatchable for the most part. Really? Yeah. Like, everything that they, like, the NBA is just so much better. And, like, they talk about fundamentals. You know, that's, that's crap. The NBA players are all way better at fundamentals. Like, it's all very, like, coach-focused driven and, you know, coach-personality driven and you know, I have a limited tolerance for the five foot eleven white guys. I think it's great for three weeks at a time when there's a lot on the line. It, you like, obviously, that's one of the most dramatic things in sports, and I look forward to it every year. But I watch very little men's college basketball during yeah, the regular season. Oh yeah, that is women's college same. basketball. On the other hand, I have a limitless capacity to watch Don Staley's South Carolina Gamecocks be wholesale ass all season. Go Cox. I'm, I'm sure, you know, you being a, a man of Tennessee, you, you must have. Yeah, a, I was going to say growing up, like I cared quite a lot about the Lady Vols. I think they might just be the Vols now. I'm not sure. But uh, it, it's not like it used to be. And so I kind of stopped no. paying attention. But it was a big deal when we were growing up. Sure. Yeah, it was my college roommate. He was from from Oliver Springs and was a big Lady Vols fan. And so we watched the the le- their last uh, national championship run with Candace Parker. We watched like every minute of that in the the dorm room. That was a lot of fun. And you know now yeah. the torch has been passed, and now South Carolina is the dominant. Uh, my dominant um my summer internship when I was in college was in Tennessee at uh, working for the Department of Energy doing some economic research. But they had this thing where if you raised a lot of money, I'm not exactly sure of the the details of it, but the upshot was that Candace Parker showed up for a free throw shooting contest. Oh man! With like the five people who raised the most money, and she beat them in shooting free throw. It was really cool. Like you know, she was still at UT, and it was, it was awesome. She beat everybody at shooting free throws, and then she dunked, and it was just like pandemonium. It was great. Yeah. Oh, Candace Parker's so cool. I just can't get over it. Anyway, so. They're, Second baseball memory. Yeah, the uh, <laughs> my bad. <laughs> so this is like a, a college baseball thing. I I actually wrote an article. I've written two articles about this. Once, uh, when I covered when I covered it live for D one, and then I wrote it again. I think it was the first thing I wrote for BP when I started there a year later. There was so. I was living in Columbus at the time, covering mostly the Big Ten, and I obviously, as you might expect, saw a ton of Ohio State that year because uh, they were in town. And yeah. they had a pretty good team. They had a couple guys who turned into prospects. Uh, Travis Lakins, Tanner Tully made the majors. Ronnie Dawson was a second-round pick. I don't remember if he's if he actually made the majors or not, but he was a, a pretty big deal. They had, It was a good team. They were out in front of the Big Ten all year, and then they just went in the tank. They lost something like something like 10 out of their last 11 conference games after Ooh. yeah they like they were in the i've covered a midweek game there they had you know louisville came into town and they beat louisville this was a year after louisville made the college world series they were one of the best teams in the country and they were like okay we've just locked up a, a tournament bid basically we need to you know like maybe we could host if we if we take a chunk out of some of the big teams in the big 10 down the stretch and that was what they were talking about and it just went into this huge slide and couldn't like just couldn't buy a couldn't buy a hit for like the last month of the season. It's one of the wildest things I've ever seen. And so I'm covering the Big Ten tournament in Minneapolis in Target Field, mm-hmm. and their first they're still I think they were still like the three seed or something. They were relatively they high seed, banked enough early. Yeah, they had just been so good in the first half of the season. They banked enough wins to be a relatively high seed. And this was no, they wouldn't have been because they played Iowa in the in the first round and they it was one of the first games of the of the tournament and they were just looking for like even then they still had to win uh like one or two games to get back into consideration for an at-large bid and like the big story from from this tournament was michigan with jake cronenworth he was the the best player on the field this week mm-hmm. came from nowhere to win the tournament and and uh, get the automatic bid nobody expected them to to make the tournament and they did and ohio state was going in the other direction and they they're playing iowa it's four games a day and um okay. yeah so i you know i was i was at target field like i don't know 12 16 hours a day uh early in this in this tournament and and it's worse in the sec because they play more games and their stadium is in 
the middle of nowhere in Alabama. Uh, it's like a rite of passage for college baseball, which I've never done. And I don't know, it's one of those unpleasantnesses that I'm I'm okay with having avoided. <laughs> so it's like nine o'clock. The game starts at like eight or nine in the morning and it's May in Minneapolis. And like, you know, like the kind of sunny it gets, it only gets when it's really cold outside. Yeah. It's like one of those days and Ohio State's up, I think it was two to one in the ninth inning. And they had had a closer who was an All-American the year before. It was like the captain of the team was like the heart and soul of that team. And it struggled a lot. And like he's coming in to close. He's got, uh, I don't remember the exact situation. It was almost exact. It was two outs. It's either one or two outs in the ninth inning. He's up against, I was nine hitter who we found out after the game, like, had a back injury so bad they didn't know if he could swing and he gives up <laughs> gives up the game losing home run and like the the change in, yeah and apparently like it's an absolute wall scraper like it was really hard to get the ball at a at a target field at, at that time but there were only a few dozen fans in the park and you know there might have been as many people in the press box and just the the mood shift that, that you could feel like like watching everything go wrong for these kids it's like one of the the most emotionally intense things I've, I've ever been a part of in sports. And that's, it's something that that's really stuck with me. Like, and it comes from these, these moments where, you know, you, where you have these players who, who are good enough that it's supposed to be predictable, but they're not quite good enough to, you know, to be professional. And like, yeah. and that so much happened. And I also think that there's an element to this where like college baseball is like, it's like college football or college basketball, where there's just so much of it that you'll find the, that these moments might not happen in a significantly higher percentage of games, but there are just so many more games on uh, yeah. at a that, time that, that makes a lot of sense. yeah, you know, like, you know, you're watching college, ba- you have one of those Saturdays where you have college football on from like noon until the Hawaii game is on. Yeah. You're like, Oh wow. I saw, you know, I saw six incredible endings today. Well, you didn't really, you know, you just channel surf to whatever was good, but like, that's, that's, I really like it that as a way to, you know, way to consume sports that like you just have everything on simmer and whenever something flares up, then you go to to watch it. Yeah. Red zone for everything. Yeah. I'll tell another story from the, the Big Ten tournament. I, I've i told this story a lot. I don't remember if I've told it on a Fangraphs podcast before. So one thing that, that happened that year is like I was basically I was one of like two regional writers who spent a lot of time in the big in the Midwest that year. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, Illinois went something like 25 and one in the big 10 that season. And I was the only person who had seen them lose all year. And so like people were, you know, like wherever I went, I was like, Oh, you saw Illinois lose. Like what, you know, they're beatable, you know? And so I had that conversation everywhere. And like, every time I showed up in a press box, it was so unusual to have like someone from a, a national outlet there that, you know, because like, yeah. if Baseball America covered this, you know, covered the Big Ten, they ran into them like once or twice all season. You know, I was just going to a lot of places that didn't really have a lot of exposure, and so like, yeah. you know, the SID or like local columnists would like, you know, would they'd want to talk to me in the press box a lot, and I don't like talking to you know talking to people all that much uh, to begin with. But like, if I'm trying to work, like I'm trying to to write, like there are times when like. You know, I don't I also don't like saying like, hey, you know, can you just let me focus here for a minute? You know, I don't want to be rude. But so it, this was the the last uh, last game of the night. It was Maryland versus Illinois. Illinois hasn't hasn't lost in about two months. And uh, there's a Maryland. This was a team. They had Lamont Wade. They had uh, Brandon Lau. They had Mike Schwarn, uh, South Jersey legend, who uh, went on to pitch for the Red Sox. Jose Quas was a third baseman. Now he's a, a relief pitcher in the Royal system. So they had good players. They were a pretty good team. But they were huge underdogs against Illinois, who, like I said, hadn't lost in, you know, since like, yeah. know, like the end of March. And a guy in a Maryland sweatshirt comes up and sits down next to me. And it, like, this is in a huge major league press box. I was, I was like, oh no, like I've got to write my fourth gamer of the day. And this guy's going to talk to me and you start talking. And he, it turns out he's the father of John Chef, who was the Maryland head coach then is now the Virginia Tech head coach. They were like something like number three in the country last year. Um, and he had just gotten to Maryland. And so he starts talking to me and, you know, he had been, he said he had been a sports writer, you know, he's just like telling stories from like this entire, you know, this lifetime of experience and Maryland goes out in front 
And this game starts at like 11 o'clock local time. It's the last game of the day out of four. The umpires, like, the umpires wanted to go home more than any umpiring crew I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. They're calling like a five foot wide strike zone. And because Maryland scores first and like, you know, their pitcher had like a five ERA that year, couldn't find the zone and it didn't matter because like this was like LeVon Hernandez levels of, <laughs> of uh, wide plate. So yeah, the strike zone is like four feet wide as we get to two o'clock in the morning and John Chef's dad's getting more and more excited as Maryland has gotten out in front early and they're hanging on and Illinois can't score because they can't reach balls or they can't hit balls that they can't reach, which are still being called strikes. Uh, And it was like, you know, one of those like parents being interviewed live on TV while their son hits his first major league home run things uh, for, you know, it was just very cool to watch him experience that. And it was something that I know until about the fourth inning of that game, I, it never even crossed my mind that one Illinois would lose and two that I would, you know, would be watching it with someone who, you know, had such a, an extreme emotional investment in it. And that's still like, it's still one of my favorite baseball memories. And I don't, I don't know that you could get that in the majors. No, I don't think so. Unless you're interviewing Wander Franco's dad when he hit that first home run. Yeah. And like, you probably weren't. <laughs> no, no, uh, I've, I've never interviewed a parent. I guess this wasn't an interview either. This was just, yeah. you know, two guys talking in the, in the press box, but I've never interviewed a, a relative uh, live during a game. So maybe that's something that, that I'll try to check off my, my box this year. Yeah. I find that a lot of those like personal connection moments in baseball are the ones that stick out forever. Like you can go to a lot of cool games and probably you will go to so many cool games that they all seem cool to you. Like in a, in a kind of unifying way they they all feel like very you can't be very unique you're just unique yeah but something like that where you have a a non-game context to add to it i feel like often stands out yeah the other game that i meant to bring up and like not to belabor this i think we're probably going longer than probably a little over uh, yeah. yeah yeah so but it was actually one of my brother's little league games my so i was terrible at at baseball my but my younger brother was very very good uh and he played for a team when he was in sixth grade that they're like they it was him and like a couple other one or two other kids who were like on the travel ball team for their age group in our hometown and a bunch of other kids who didn't you know who weren't very good and the coach like said at the beginning of the year what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna try to bring everybody's level up, not just focus on the stars. And I don't care nice. that much if we win because every team makes the playoffs. So they went like three and 18 during the regular season. And when, and because like everybody on the team, even in like U 12, this was unusual. Everybody on the team could like hit and throw and catch and run the bases properly. And because of that, like there were no easy outs. They didn't make any errors and they went all the way to, you know, to the final. And my brother started that game. He, pitched and the first first four batters he faced scored and nobody from either team reached second base for the rest of the game the, like the six inning game was over in an hour and 10 minutes but i just you know like nobody outside i doubt that half the people who participated in that game care about care about it like this must have been god 20 years ago now but that still like stuck out to me just because of like how that team was coached and like how dominant the pitching was and in that game like you know it's the last year before they moved from the 46 foot mound to the 60 foot mound but it's like you said like having a personal connection to that like you know it's that stands out to me more than certain play you know mlb playoff games that i've covered yeah i that that's maybe an extreme example of it but i i find that that is a like some personal thing that sticks out is often a great way to remember something forever i I guess i'm describing memory more so than Mm -hmm. baseball at this point but yeah that that's great well, that's what that's what this is, right? Like, you know, I try to this was something that in terms of my approach to covering the sport, like I've had to change it a little bit because, you know, the demands for Grantland are different for the demands from D1 are different from the demands for Fangraphs. Like, you know, I yeah. write about baseball differently than I did six months ago. And that's one thing that I've, I've, I'm working I'm making a real concerted effort not to lose is that like this is a, you know, this site, you know, what makes this site what it is is commitment to empirics and i'm trying you know trying to find ways to make that dovetail with storytelling and yeah you know, sort of like the the political philosophy of the game which has always been a, a great interest of of mine and 
you know, making it all sort of make sense in a, a broader narrative context. And that's, you know, it's been one of the fun things about adjusting to, to working here versus some of the other jobs I've had. Yeah, I think that one thing I really like about Fangraphs is that because it's very data driven, when you manage to do the like the storytelling thing with the data, it feels really good. Oh, man, it's one of those like, I don't know, I wouldn't know this from experience because like I said, I was a terrible baseball player. But like, I'm told that when you really connect with a ball and like there's no vibration in the bat, like that feeling is like, I imagine that's what this this feeling is like, because I've done what you've described a very few times in my career and it, it feels great every single time. I wrote this story last year about Julio Arias making maybe the two worst bunt attempts in the majors that year. Uh, I think he bunted at the lowest ball that was thrown that anyone offered at, and then at the highest that anyone had thrown that was offered at, and then laid down a perfect squeeze bunt on on, on O2. And, you know, I, I had all the data for that, and it was just very enjoyable to kind of tell this, like, oh, this is going to go bad. Oh, this is going to go bad. Oh, it goes really well. And uh, this is a... Great segue, so I'm calling it out. So now it's not a great segue, but that article was nominated for a Sabre Analysis oh, yeah. Award. So too have articles written by me and you this year. So I was nominated for an article called, So How Good Are Those Probabilities on the Apple TV Broadcast? And you were nominated for an article called, The Playoffs Aren't Too Big, The League Is Way Too Small. So uh, A, um, we'd love for people listening to this to vote for Fangraphs writers in it's general. It's an honor and just to be nominated, Ben. It is. But B, um, tell me about your article. Well, I think the two things that, you know, the two articles you mentioned really, you talked about us as being like sort of similar kinds of writers or like having similar interests. But mm-hmm. I think that's true up to a point because the two examples, the one you got nominated for, like the article you got nominated for, like you went and like, you know, held the the Apple TV broadcast to their, their feet to the fire you did you know examined something that was of genuine public interest and used rigorous data methods and stuff and like wrote legitimately i think one of the the most important influential baseball articles of 2022 and that's why you got Thank nominated you. and no like i'm not just you know trying to pump you up like i felt this you know i told Meg this, you know, before I even worked here, like that, like, I really think that was one of the most important baseball articles of the year last year. And it would be a shock if it wasn't nominated. Whereas me, on the other hand, I did a post and put census data in it to try to irritate our, our commenters. (laughs) And like, I went back and read the article. I was like, okay, this is like a little more rigorous and like does make a bigger point than I remember it being, but like, looks pretty rigorous to me. A lot of charts in here, Mike. Yeah, I know. That's how you make something look rigorous, Ben, is you put charts in it. <laughs> so I don't want to like undermine my own awards case because I do, you know, looking back on it, I think it really was one of the best things that I wrote last year. And I think it, it set out to challenge a lot of the assumptions that we make about what makes a, a, a franchise successful, what makes a league successful, what are the terms upon which we engage with with a franchise. And I think like we're talking about the way I wrote this for, for Fangraphs is different than the way I would have written it at other places I would have worked because like I had to actually back it up with some form of empirics. I couldn't just say like, Oh you know, Wouldn't this be cool if, but you know, I, it was definitely one of those like, you know, dropping the, the grenade in the group chat and walking away kind of premises as opposed to, I think, you know, you're not only well-researched, but I think important and, an impactful article. The, the contrast between the two is very funny to me. I mean, so this is my third nomination, and my prior two were for a very well-researched census data article, actually. Meg and I looked at how minor league teams closing down would affect how easy it is to drive to baseball for various definitions of baseball, like do you count indie leagues, do you count low minors, that kind of thing. And that was like, you know, intensively researched and Meg and I did a bunch of like bouncing the way that it was written back and forth off of each other. And then for one about Julio Arias bunting three times, like (laughs) it takes all kinds. Yeah. And I think there are times when like you just look at the data. I have examples in my head. I've told too many stories, so I won't like go off on too big a tangent, but like when you've got sort of that half-baked idea or like, wow, this is weird. And then, you know, you look up the numbers and you're like, no, this is exactly as weird as I thought it was based on, yeah. you know, based on just Very how it satisfying. Um, that's, that's always a lot of fun. And I think 
you know, when that happens, I think it also resonates with the audience because they're watching the same baseball you are and they're having a lot of the same reactions. And I think like that's something that, that you've done well in the, the common thread between like the Urias thing and the Apple TV thing is that you took something that it, like you look at and like, well, that doesn't look right. And then you put that in in the context of like how not right it actually is. And yeah, you know, I think one, that's a... one is more serious than the other. You know, one is <laughs> just, just my bit. But I, I think that's a you know a valuable thing that you can do with with data. Like I think there's this is a battle that that I hope that you know sabermetrics writ large has won. That not everything that involves data or that involves statistics is like big end predictive stuff. Yeah, it's sometimes it's it's about identifying and examining outliers, and like that's a you know. As someone who has struggled with, you know, the big end predictive stuff, uh, you know, that's the outliers is definitely where I make a lot of, you know, get a lot of work done. And I think that's a, it's a very good thing. I mean, this is self-serving, but I think that that's one thing that having an editorial platform like Fangraphs really helps with is that, you know, you, you literally can't have all the articles just be like, here are five breakout hitters for next year. Or like Mookie Betts changed his Z swing. Like there's yeah. there's a limit to those, and so we end up writing about more stuff. You hear that, Meg and David? Please don't lay us off and replace us with you know more twenty two year old you know neuroscience geniuses. God, they- I shouldn't be admitting this to you, but I've been doing a lot of data filtering for some of my recent writing, and I'm using ChatGPT to figure out the code. So it's just a it's just a matter of time now, Michael. Good, you're a I mean, you're a step ahead of me, like in in terms of just statistical of literacy. Until it eats us alive, because I don't know how to do a thing, and I ask it, and it tells me. Yeah, man, and I mean the AI. I'm, what worries me about the AI is not that not that it will be able to replicate art or writing in any meaningful way, but that the that like the financial decisions in our society will be continue to be offloaded to the kind of morons who can't tell the difference between like an AI generated person and an actual writer. Like I've already, you know, we already see this in media to a certain extent. Like, you know, you're going to have a writer who like actually knows how to set up an argument who actually like knows how to use figurative language or, or make Mm -hmm. a, you know, make a persuasive case versus somebody who presents it, for example, in a five paragraph essay format. And the, if the money people can't tell the difference, then something's going to replace us, whether it's AI or something else. I still like the five paragraph essay format. It has its place. Yeah, it has its place. And that place is seventh grade. Wow. That's a, that's a real slap in the face to my various high school AP English teachers. Mrs. Yokely, I'm sorry. Michael didn't mean it. <laughs> I liked a lot of my AP English teachers, but like, what, you know, what are the AP English teachers teaching you? I mean, obviously, like they're teaching you literature. Hopefully they're like actually teaching you to understand and, and really grapple with, you know, the, the weightier texts that make up like civil society. But what like the goal of the AP program is to get you to pass the AP test for college credit. And what, you know, I used to, you know, not only did I go through this myself, but like I tutored it, you know, when, when I was in grad school, like it's so formulaic and your grader you know, sits with your essay for like two minutes tops. Yeah. You know, and they that, know the formula. Yeah. They know the formula. You know, it's just about checking boxes. You know, it might as well be dumb. If it could be read by a machine and graded by, by a machine, I'm sure it would be. And, you know, it's sort of a, I don't know, I think an intellectually bankrupt way to teach writing of all things. I I sympathize with that a little. And I'd say this, I, I, I'd say this, I don't feel like I have to apologize to my, my AP English teachers for that because they all like taught the subject matter in ways that like really engage with it and that I learned, you know, learned more than I realized then from. But just in terms of being able to churn out the five paragraph essay, it's, yeah. it's of limited utility. There There is an argument that they need to teach you the form so that your content can be judged rather than being discarded for being in the wrong form. Well, that's true. Silly, but also the way life is. Right. And it's silly, but it's also like, imagine if, if like you took piano lessons, right. And Mm -hmm. the last thing they taught you was hot cross buns. Like you need to learn hot cross buns before you can play Beethoven or whatever, but eventually like you need to progress to the next thing or else you're in a state of, you know, limited ability to execute, much less create, which is what writing is about. Yeah. Well, allow me to say this. I I think they did a pretty decent job because here I am as a writer, as an adult. Um, That's true. So they didn't at least, uh, maybe maybe it wasn't because of the five paragraph essays, but I do think that tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, tell them what you told them 
is a thing that I tell myself when I'm writing, and it, it does get my head in the right place often. That if you beat people over the head with what you're writing about, it is a lot easier for them to remember what you are writing about. Now, I prefer to, to cloak my meeting in abstruse metaphor. Really make the reader work. That's what I'm after. <laughs> well, if, if we've learned anything today, it's that uh, Michael likes doing work. How is that the lesson you drew from that? <laughs> I hate working, man. But anyway, I got to go get back to get back on the content treadmill. Got to keep those page views ticking over. Yeah. And I have to go thank the Lord that, uh, that the drilling has stopped for now. Woo! So for Michael Bauman, I'm Ben Clemens. Thanks for listening to us today. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Dan Hayes for joining us. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider sharing it with a friend or two. Word of mouth helps us out. After you have visited the Fangraphs.com shop, don't forget to also go vote in the Sabre Awards. Like Ben and Michael said, there are many great nominees this year, a number of which are represented at Fangraphs, so make sure to go check out all the great research. You can also hear about these kinds of things via the Fangraphs newsletter, which I recommend if you have not signed up for it already. That should do it for us this week. Thank you for listening, and have a good one.